Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and this is episode 52 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Today, I have a really, really special guest for you that I am super excited to share. Guess who the guest is? It is you. What are we doing? Today is the first mailbag episode of the podcast, and this is a new thing we're trying to see how it goes. Here's how it works. My inbox gets flooded with questions from you guys. A lot of them are great questions, and I do not have the capacity to answer every single email in that way, nor would that be the best way to do it. Because when I answer an email, you're the only one that sees the answer. So I decided that a mailbag episode would be a great way to solve that problem. That way you get your questions answered and everybody out there listening gets to hear the answers. So today we're going to go through six questions from listeners out there like you. If you want to get your questions answered for future episodes, email them to podcast at SoHeidi, that's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com, podcast at SoHeidi dot com with your question, and I will pick the best ones and answer them on the Mailbag Show. We will be doing the show once a month, and uh, yeah, I'd love to answer your questions. Um, You can send anything from being a designer to launching your own label to freelancing to resume or job hunting advice, whatever it is in the fashion industry that you're looking for support with, send your question in. If I don't have an answer, I will try to get one for you and give you my best advice. So let's dive right in and get started today. The first question comes in from Bridget. Bridget is thinking about going into fashion, and she wants to know, do you think studying under the major fashion design in college would be a waste of time? And if not, will my minimum knowledge make it unsuccessful for me? Okay, so Bridget, I don't think that going into a field that you love is a waste of time. I think that you need to seriously consider what you're willing to put into this. I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and we talked about how at the end of the day, life is tough, jobs are hard, work is challenging, and going after what you want to do in life is it is a uphill climb no matter what you do whether that's in fashion or whatever industry you choose to go into listen it's hard work so i think that if you're willing to put in the work if you're willing to put in the hours i don't think it's a waste of time now that being said I would be very careful when you research what college you're going to go to. There's a lot of programs out there that have really big names, um, FIT, Parsons, FITM. You know, it can be hit or miss what you get out of that program. It can be dependent upon the teacher. Uh, It can be dependent upon a lot of variables. But I would really vet and research the program you go into. 
I would get some advice from people who work in the field. Make sure you're getting the skills and the instruction and gaining the knowledge that you need. If you're not, then get that hands-on somehow, whether that be in the form of apprenticeships or internships, which are priceless and super valuable. And I think if you're willing to put in that 150% effort, then you can make it happen. Uh, This is a concept I talk a lot about in some of my programs, and I talk a lot about with other designers, and it's that 150% concept I just mentioned. It's doing the extra credit. And I look at doing the extra credit. I parallel this to being in school, right? Because when you're in school, you have the opportunity to do extra credit. It's extra. It's not required, but it's what takes you from 100% to 110%, from an A to an A+, from a 4.0 GPA to a 4.2 GPA. Side note, I did graduate with above a 4.0 GPA. The reason I say this is because doing the extra credit in school translates to doing the extra credit in work, in real life, in your job, whatever it may be. And that is what sets you apart from everybody else who is trying to get ahead. That is what will set you apart in your job. That is what will set you apart in the fashion industry is going above and beyond, putting in that 150% effort. If you're not willing to do that, then yes, it would be a waste of your time. Um, But if you have that drive behind you, if you're willing to put in the hours, the effort, the energy to make this happen, you can. That being said, it is still competitive. A lot of industries are competitive. Um, I also think there's value in looking at sort of opportunities outside of the exact design sphere. We get really stuck on design, like being a designer. But there's all sorts of other cool jobs within the industry that can and maybe just as fun and interesting for you and are less competitive and can even pay more. There's technical designers, there are product developers, there are merchandisers and buyers. So I would also encourage you in addition to, you know, if you do decide to go to school for fashion, in addition to sort of vetting the program really, really well, you know, put them on the spot, ask them what their placement rate is for graduating uh, students and and really make sure that this program is, is the right fit for you get feedback from from students who have graduated and and see where they are in their careers if they felt prepared because I've heard a lot of horror stories out there again from top schools Um, but beyond that when you're exploring that look at what other types of jobs and opportunities there are to work in outside of the design sphere Um, again I think it's really easy to sort of pigeonhole this concept of working in fashion as being a designer but there are so many other people behind the scenes that help make the product happen and a lot of those jobs are still really cool and really fun and you can be creative and you can solve problems and so don't limit yourself just to that design space so uh, I hope that helps you know you make the last comment of will my minimum knowledge make it unsuccessful for me and I think this is a reframe of your own mindset that you've got to take a look at the minimum knowledge Um, why are you saying minimum knowledge? You've got to go out there, like I mentioned, that 150% effort. You've got to go out there. You've got to learn. Um, You have to create these opportunities for yourself to to get some experience. Like I said, apprenticeship, internship, so on and so forth. Um, So don't put that barrier of minimum knowledge up there for you. You've got to take the the action and take the assertiveness to learn and, and gain the knowledge that you do need to get ahead. So that is my advice for you, Bridget. I hope that helps. Let me know what you think of that and uh, keep me updated on your journey as you progress throughout your career. Next up, we have a couple questions on freelancing. All right. First up is from Irene, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Uh, Irene, Irene. Um, That's a tough one for me, but my apologies in advance if I butchered that at all. 
Your question is, how do you sell your freelance services on social media such as Instagram without coming across too pushy to get clients? First of all, I social media is not my number one place to try to quote unquote sell my freelance services. Um, I think that there are delicate, nice ways you can do it without coming across pushy, as you mentioned. I think you really need to think about, I'm not constantly selling, 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 me, 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 look at what I can do, buy this service for me, I can help you with this, I can help you with that. But also think about it as who might be following you on social media and what might they be looking for. So there's brands out there, right? You want to work with various brands. Let's say you're in an activewear market. So you want to work with activewear brands. What types of stuff are activewear brands always looking for? Or any brand, any category you want to throw in there. Um, I say activewear because I think if you're going to do this, you want to focus your account on a specific category so that those types of brands are attracted to you. But think about what they might want to see. They might want to see color inspiration. They might want to see trend reports. They might want to see uh, what's going on in the industry, you know, who's doing a collaboration with who. And so I think there's a lot of interesting ways you can start creating content to, first of all, show that you're up on the industry and that you're watching what's going on. And two, you're providing value to them. You're showing them, hey, look at this great uh, mood board from from Pinterest, and it really shows off um, some interesting design features that I'm seeing happening a lot in the activewear industry. So you're not actually asking for a sale. You're not actually asking for clients. Instead, you're providing value. You're engaging, um, and you're creating an experience that your customer wants to have. Nobody wants to always be sold to, which I get what you're saying. That's what you're asking. How do I do this without coming across too pushy? Um, That being said, I think you can very gently put photos up, maybe of some work that you've done, and talk about the work, and then, you know, ask if you're looking for any support with your activewear brand, I'm available for freelance. That being said, I will go back to my original statement. I think it can be hard to get work off of social media. It's a very passive experience, meaning people don't often engage on those platforms unless there's something controversial, unless there's something that you know, this beautiful picture that brings a tear to their eye, they're not often going to reach out and ask for for your services. Um, I don't find that to be the best place to do this. I am a firm believer that your best resources for actually getting clients and actually getting the work are more proactive on your side. And what do I mean by that? I mean, directly going out and talking to the brands, whether that's via email or whether that's via LinkedIn or whether that's in person, building relationships through um, through your network, having conversations with people, getting out to industry events and asking for work that way. Now, it's not as blunt as just asking for the work. I go through many different scripts and ways you can ask for the work that isn't super blunt, word for word script in my ultimate guide to being a freelance fashion designer. I will link to that in the show notes. If you haven't checked it out, definitely read through that because it talks you through exactly what you can say in email or in person to ask for the work in a way that's not pushy. Um, I like this arrangement better. Because you're the one in control. You're the one reaching out to the brand, talking to them, initiating that conversation. When you're on social media, you may post something, but 
that requires the brand to respond to you. And often they have to click the read more button on the comments. They don't even see everything that you're saying. Um, So I think it can be done. I think there is interesting discoverability through hashtags. And I know designers that do get some work this way, but I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. If you're running your social media platform and it's something that you do very naturally, you enjoy posting to Instagram, you're you're posting this content, like I said earlier, that is valuable, that maybe has trends or color inspiration or projects that you're currently working on or stuff you've done in the past, I think that that is fine. But I wouldn't focus on 100% building engagement on Instagram. There's also this really scary concept of, you know, Instagram and Facebook and these social media platforms, they own the platform. So you can build as much as you want on there. But what happens when they change their algorithm and all of a sudden you've built up to a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand followers and bam, you've lost control because they wanted to change the platform. So I like an arrangement where you're more in control. You're doing the outreach yourself. That could be in the format of email or sending a direct message on LinkedIn. Um, I do know designers who have sent direct messages on Instagram. Their response rate has been meh, mediocre. So again, things you can try, but I would really focus on where you can get a direct contact to the person one-on-one. I think email is best, LinkedIn sort of second best, depending on the company and the person if they're hanging out on LinkedIn. That can vary between corporate brands and established brands to startup and indie brands and upcoming designers sometimes aren't spending a lot of time on LinkedIn. So, you know, it can vary depending on that. Um, But bottom line, you have to go out and ask. I think you need to figure out delicate ways to say that um, and to ask for the work. And again, scripts in my ultimate guide of how you can do that, some examples. But uh, I wouldn't rely exclusively on Instagram for um, trying to get freelance projects. So I hope that helped you, Irene. Let us know what you think about that and how you decide to proceed. You can always send me an email, podcast at soheidi.com, to uh, keep me updated on how this journey goes for you. Next up, we have Kim. Kim has another question on freelancing, and this is a great question, Kim. She says, how are you able to do the product development side, example, fit comments, tech packs, vendor communication, as a freelancer? The last company I worked at, we would have meetings daily and go over fit issues all together. Do you contact the factories and update the client as needed on a specific basis? Here's what I think. There are some brands that you can do this remotely, There are some brands that this is really hard to do remotely. Um, A lot of brands that I've worked with, I manage the entire process. So when it comes time to doing fit comments and vendor communication, I am managing all of that. My client is always CC'd on the email. Uh, They always are looped in. Sometimes we will get on Skype or FaceTime and do a fitting together remotely. Sometimes we get together in the same room and we do fittings. So that may mean me traveling to them or them traveling to me. I don't do that super often, but a lot of uh, freelancers I know do do that uh, on a regular basis. They travel to the client. um, And if that's a plane right away, then that's something you can negotiate with the client upon engaging with them and doing this freelance project. Um, That being said, yeah, essentially it comes down to me working with the factories, me making sure everything's getting done, and then, yeah, pretty much just updating the client on an as-needed basis. Again, this is going to vary. Some brands, they're not going to outsource this portion of the project. They may outsource the process of actually putting the tech packs together. 
They may outsource the fit comments, but that may mean you need to come into the office and do a meeting with them, and then you can go home and do the comments on your own. Again, every company is going to be really different depending on the size, the structure. I have worked with medium-sized brands where I handle everything independent from them. Of course, they're in the loop, but they trust me. They know that I'm going to make sure this fits right, um, and they've essentially outsourced their entire design and development uh, uh, to me. So, you know, again, it just really depends on the brand. I always keep my customers in the loop. Um, I'm a big proponent of keeping them more updated than less updated is great when you're a freelancer. They will always tell you if you're updating them too much. But um, I think one of the challenges that freelancers have is they in their head know that they're doing the work. You as the freelancer know that the work is getting done. The client's sitting there like, is it getting done? Did the prototype arrive? Did they get it fitted? Are they putting the comments together? You may be sitting there and you know, yeah, the prototype came in yesterday. I fit it on the fit model today. The comments are going out tomorrow or whatever the task is that you're doing. And the client is sitting there wondering what's going on. So that's the thing I've learned over the years is to just keep your client up to date as much as possible. Again, if you update them too much, they will let you know. But don't leave them sitting there for three days five days, 10 days, wondering if you're actually doing any work. So again, that's a conversation you have to have with the brand. It's going to depend on their structure and how they're set up and your location. If they're willing to have you come out um, and pay for a plane ticket, or if, if you're within driving distance, that could be easier. So I hope that helps. Um, I will say that when I do those types of projects with clients, um, the FedEx bill does get quite costly because we are often shipping packages back and forth. And that's something that they always pay for. So that's negotiated in the initial contract that they pay for any shipping charges associated with samples or sending uh, submits back and forth or things like that. Because there are times they want to be in the loop and they want to see stuff. And that can be more efficient than uh, getting together in real life. But again, Skype, FaceTime, whatever video meeting format you choose, these can be priceless to go over things together, especially, you know, as the, the world becomes more modern and people get comfortable with working remotely. This is a trend I'm seeing more and more. Um, so again, this can vary from an old school company to a more modern sort of startup company may have different perspective on this. So thank you so much for your question, Kim. I hope that helps. Again, reach out anytime and uh, let us know how that goes for you. Next up, we have another question from uh, LV, also on freelancing. So let me set this up. LV says, I'd like to get your advice on customers who will use your service once and then seem to disappear and not contact you again. I've had a few customers, mainly just starting new businesses who approach me, have me work for them on a project, maybe even two, get as much info, tech packs and my supplier contacts, and then not contact me again. I know I do a great job for them as their feedback is always quite positive, but I feel like they kind of use me just to get the contacts for manufacturers or suppliers. Is there any way I can protect myself from these kinds of situations? Has this ever happened to you? LV, I won't lie. This is a very, very tricky situation. You mentioned that these are uh, customers who are just starting out in new businesses, and I do find that that happens a lot with them. Um, that is not the type of customer I, I work with. Typically, I work with brands who are a little bit more established. I think what can happen with um, some of these brands that are starting up is that they may go through that first project or two and then nothing ever happens. Um, they may not move on to anything else. Yes, you may have given them 
your contacts, your sources, your suppliers, all of that stuff. But they that's where the everything kind of comes to a halt. That being said, that might not be the case. They may continue on with your suppliers, with your contacts, with your sources. So this is a really tricky space to be in because if you're, let's say, working hourly and you pass out some of your contacts, what you've just given them is is quite a bit of value. Now, I think there's this really interesting fine line between holding things too close to your chest and being really selfish with your information versus sharing knowledge. Um, you know, I'm a big, big proponent of sharing knowledge and I give away a lot of stuff. That being said, I don't, if someone just emails me and asks me if I have a manufacturer, I don't necessarily just hand that over to them. Um, A couple reasons. My manufacturers have been burned before from clients I've worked with. And I have this like really sort of, um, I can't think of the word, but I have this, uh, I really waver on this because part of me feels like, you know, the manufacturer, the factory, and excuse my terminology, it's not the manufacturer, you're the the, the brand's the manufacturer, but the the cut and sew factory the supplier the vendor you know they're they're an adult they're a business as well they can handle themselves they can vet clients they can they can make sure their clients are good but i do get a little nervous if i were to continually refer brands that default on payments that are just a pain to work with um, to some of my vendors that i've had relationships with for 15 years that starts to tarnish the way they think of me so that's where i do start to get a little bit sensitive um what can you do to avoid this? Well, first of all, I or to your your question is what can you do to protect yourself from these kinds of situations? Um, I think there's ways that you can say, you know what, I can do the design, I can do the tech packs. Uh, if you want to go into production um, or if you want to get some samples made, I can help you manage that process with some of my suppliers. Um, you know, I don't blindly just hand out their contact information, but I can help you through the process. And when we're done with this project, then you have that supplier um, that that I've done things kind of like that before, you know, and then I think it can also depend on the size of the project because I have worked on some projects that are a little bit larger scale. And at the end of the day, the client was great. And I'm like, you know what, Here, here's a source I recommend um, for you to get get to the next step because I also think there's something to be said in building those great relationships and not being super stingy with your resources. Again, this is such a delicate area and it's something that I've sort of squabbled with myself. Um, I don't know if I have the perfect answer for you. Um, again, I'm, I don't want to get that reputation of always referring bad people, but then I also want to help people and and give them the, the sources that they need. So you know, I think it's a gut check with the brand that you're working with. And perhaps you talk to them about, you know, I'd love to help you manage this process. I know how the supplier works. I can really help get things through um, efficiently and minimize protos and help you get what you need more quickly and more cost effectively. So you can kind of pitch it at that angle. Um, That being said, if they were a great client and it was a great project and you, you like them and you think maybe there's more to come, you can pass them the information and maybe there's more to come maybe there's not but here's the thing think about it this way if they were to work with a freelance two freelancers one like you and let's say you gave them the information and you never heard from them again um uh excuse me you gave them the information and 
they took it and they were able to get to the next step and then they need more support versus a freelancer who didn't give them the next information. They weren't able to get to the next step. Who do you think they're going to go back to? They're going to think about the person that gave them the most value, that was the most helpful with them. Um, so you can think about it that like you're doing a goodwill and and hopefully they come back again. Are a lot of them get, not going to come back? I think so. And I think the reason behind this is not necessarily because they're taking advantage of you. I think it's because that next step is is perhaps never achieved. That being said, they may not be ready for your services again for three, six, nine months. So I think there's also opportunity from your position to follow up with them and to reach out and say, hey, you know, how did it go with so-and-so who I referred you to? I'd love to hear how things are going, if there's any way I can help. Um, Just wanted to check in and see what was going on. So I think there's always opportunity to do that. I will again go back to the value comment I made earlier about the Instagram feed. I think you know, as you come across resources of value, and that can be things like a podcast episode or a new website that has got great um, trend reports on it or something, some sort of source, you know, not just giving them a, a factory or a vendor or something, but just something that comes through your inbox that you think, wow, that brand I did that project for would really be interested in this. Forward them that and just say, hey, I saw this and thought of you. Um, just wanted to see how your project was going and see what, you know, see if you need any help with anything. I'm here. And I think that sometimes you going out and asking for that, um, there's a lot of value in that. And I actually just got off a call with someone before I recorded this, and I talked about how you have to ask for what you want. So if you want to work with them again, ask for that. Now, will you never hear back from some of them? Absolutely, yes, this has and will continue to happen. But some of them you will hear back from. So again, I'm not sure if I gave you a really direct or specific answer. I hope that helped a little bit. Um, It is a tough topic. Great question that you asked, and hopefully that provides you with some further insight into what may or may not be going on. But um, just go your gut and and do what you feel is right. Uh, don't be afraid to follow up and um, don't be afraid either to ask to help manage that process with the vendor because you know how they work and you can really facilitate things. I think that could be a great win-win solution for everybody. So I hope that helps, LV. Let us know how that goes for you. Um, I'm here to support you. Again, keep me updated, podcast at soheidi.com. All right, last up, we have two questions um, about launching your own brand or having your own label. The first is from Ogie. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name right. Boy, this is tough with these uh, emails coming into my inbox. O-G-E, Ogie, uh, my best guess there. And Ogie says, everybody you have invited to speak, referencing the podcast, will always say that you need so much money to start a fashion line. As an immigrant and fashion design student, I am really striving hard to make it in the fashion industry. I have a blog. I'm a fashion stylist now, and I'm launching my online store, and it is very, very difficult. Please discuss how to start small processes and methods. For example, I design my own t-shirts and patterns and do the whole sewing myself because I can't afford manufacturing now. Am I doing the right thing or not? Boy, this is really a can of worms, Ogie. Um, I think a couple things. First is when I started my brand, I started with 
no money. I started with the money I had in my from my day job working as a receptionist. Um, I had no investors, no seed money. I literally started by buying fabric at the fabric store, sewing things. I would wear them myself. I started doing small runway shows here in the local Denver area. And I really started from absolute zero. So I think there's I think there's two ways you can look at this. I think you can look at launching a brand and going into production and manufacturing. And I'm going to order 100 or 500 or 1,000 pieces of something. And I'm going to just put up this website, this e-commerce website, and everybody's going to come. And that is not how it's going to work unless you have money and unless you have backing. So I think the other way to go about it is to start super small with like one or two items, you know, and and those are going to be things that I think you're going to have to look more at selling on your own. It's very, very hard to put up a website and to just get people there and to buy. Um, It's first of all, hard to even get people there. Second of all, once you get people there, it's very hard to get them to buy. So I understand where you're coming from with that. It is very, very difficult. Um, It's not as magic as just putting up a store. There's so many shops out there. So I would think more about what you can do. I think it's important to have an online presence, of course. Um, and that can be a simple website that's free. And you can have, you know, that link on your hang tags and stuff. But I think if you're really strapped on funds, I think you're better off starting super, super small. So what does that look like? I think that looks like creating a handful of garments, wearing them yourself, um, getting some feedback, seeing what sticks, what doesn't stick, start looking at some local boutiques, start looking at some local markets and fairs. If you haven't listened to the episode with Elle from El Raleigh, do that because she started from zero as well and she funded everything herself. And, you know, she really got started by making stuff, wearing it, making more, going and setting up booths at markets and selling her product face to face and getting, you know, into stores and I think there's a lot of opportunity to invest more sweat equity, meaning putting more of your own time and energy into selling this in real life, in person. Again, that online presence is important. Um, just to have a website, just to show, you know, I've got some photos and it doesn't have to be much. A simple little lookbook gallery and an about page and a contact page, you know, it doesn't have to be much. Um, but But I think I would look more at starting grassroots in your own backyard. Um, And what does that actually look like? Again, that looks like you getting out there, you selling your product. Um, I think that that can be done a lot more cost effectively. It's a lot of work. Listen, as I said earlier, when I answered Bridget's question, anything you do in this industry is a lot of work. You're going to have to put in a lot of time and effort. But I think if you really can't, Uh, afford the investment, which I actually think is almost a wiser direction to go. Because if you go the route of sort of starting grassroots and doing this in your own backyard, so to speak, and starting by making the product yourself um, and getting out there and selling it, then I think what happens is you start to get to know your customer really well and you understand what they like and what they don't like. Um, another great episode is Kristen from Exclusively Kristen who did this. She started really small and just invested the little bit of money she had into making a few samples, wearing them around, 
doing some pop-up shops, talking to her customer, understanding what her customer wanted and needed, making adjustments. Three years later, she's just getting into production now. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity to build a really, really strong foundation. And it's going to take time. None of this happens fast. So I'll link to both of those episodes in the show notes. I think you'll enjoy listening to both of them if you haven't. But those are two examples of people who did not start with a ton of money and who have been able to get their businesses off the ground. So think about a different business model. It doesn't always mean putting up this huge online store, going into production, having all of this stuff professionally created and in inventory, and now you're a fashion house. Uh, Anything, worst case scenario, which I hear a lot, is people that go that direction, they just dive in really deep head first, they dump a bunch of money in, then they sit on a bunch of inventory, and they can't afford to to recover from that. They wind up selling it on eBay. They donate it to the thrift store. They just can't do anything with it. So I'd really think twice about this. And I I would say that I think you're better off starting a little bit more grassroots, um, mitigating your risk, slowly iterating and iterating based on the feedback you get and building some momentum that way. Um, it's kind of how I built my momentum. And again, there's other people that have done it that way with very, very, very little money, just the money you have to buy some fabric, make some stuff yourself and then set up a booth at a show and sell it there. So I hope that helps, Ogie. Let me know how that works out for you, what you think of that, what changes you may make. I'd love to hear your thoughts on my advice and uh, keep me updated. All right, last up, uh, we have one last question on launching a label from Nicola. Nicola says, many people I've spoken to advise that it's best to talk about what benefits the product offers consumers as a way of justifying pricing, which is great marketing advice. However, people want a quality garment that doesn't cost the earth too. What's the ethos behind fair pricing while still making a profit? All right, Nicola, great question. A little bit tricky question as well. There's so many different variables to look at when you are thinking about the price. So first of all, I think you have to think about your price in terms of first look at your target customer. Who is that customer? Is she 25 um, and paying off student loans? Is she 50 and has a great paying job and can afford to spend a little bit more money like who exactly is your customer where does she live what what does she do for fun on the weekends you know what's her financial situation once you get that dialed in and you can do that by looking at brands in in the market that are complementary to yours or perhaps even competitors of yours? Like who is the market that they're targeting? Is that customer willing to pay a certain price point? So first starting out with, is my my potential price point even valid or relevant for the customer I'm trying to serve? So a couple examples from that I just mentioned exclusively Kristen and um, my answer to Ogie, but that's an episode I'd also recommend you listen to because she talks a lot about how when she was in those first three years developing her product, she first had her shirts, I think, priced at 98. And as she was going around and doing pop-up shops and talking to her customers, she discovered that that was 
she was priced out of her customer. They wanted something for 58 or 68. So she had to make adjustments and that can be in the quality of the fabric and that can be in in um, the quality of the trims. There's, there's ways to make adjustments to the price. So I think that first you have to figure out what is your customer willing to pay? Second, I think you have to figure out what does your customer really care about? I've heard too many stories of designers who... Uh, and this is a couple years ago, so I think things could be changing now. But still, I've heard stories of designers who it was very important to them to do Made in the USA. Now, they were doing large production. Um, there's an episode with Rochelle Barons, and I'll link to that in the show notes. She, for a while, was doing Made in the USA, and she was doing large-scale production. And it was very cost prohibitive. I mean, it was very expensive um, versus what she could get it done for overseas. And I'm not going to go into that diatribe because that's a whole nother conversation. We've talked about that on the show quite a bit. But that being said, she discovered that her customer didn't really care about meat in the USA. Um, you know, as unfortunate as that may sound to some of you listeners out there, but she had, was so proud to have that made in the USA in her label, um, but they didn't really care. And she also said that perhaps in their defense, she didn't do a good enough job educating them why they should care. This is another topic we've talked about in the podcast quite a bit is educating your consumer. You know, Everlane sort of broke the mold on this in terms of showing us what goes on behind the scenes and why the price is what the price is. But I think at some point, People have to understand what goes into the product to understand the price. And then you can compare and contrast that to like what goes into a cheap product. Um, That being said, I think there's certain markets and certain customers that, you know, they don't care about this, but they care about that. How are you going to find those things out? You're going to talk to your customer and you're going to understand because they may care about the fabric quality. They may care that it's sustainable fabric more than they care that it's made in the U.S. or where it's made. I don't know what they care about. That is something you have to figure out with your specific target customer. Again, how old is she um, or he? You know, how much money do they make? How much are they willing to spend on these certain products? So, you know, saying people want a quality garment that doesn't cost the earth too. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think some people are willing to spend money for the right items. I know I am. Like, I'm happy to spend a couple hundred dollars on the right jacket or the right item if it's an investment piece and if it's well made. So I don't think you can blanket say that statement. I think that's true. Again, that's going to depend on who your customer is and what market they're in. Um, I also think that some people don't care about the quality and they just want something cheap. So that's a whole nother market, you know, Um, perhaps not as extreme as some of the fast fashion out there, but there's always happy mediums. So this is something I would really encourage you to do more customer research on. Talk to your potential um, buyer and, and see what she cares about and see what she's willing to pay for that and what else she spends her money on in the apparel um, arena and look at how those brands are doing it because there could be some interesting opportunity um, and that may just be in form of uh, an education uh, structure. And so that could be in the way of hang tags or stuff on your website, or if you're doing pop-up shops, you know, um, 
displays that you have educating the customer about what's going on behind the scenes of the garment. That's another thing that Elle of Elle Relie talks a lot about too. You know, her dresses are a certain price point because she hand makes every single one and she's still figuring out, you know, is the customer willing to pay this? And sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But that's where, you know, starting small and starting slow, um, you're not going to build this empire in six months or even a year. Yeah, there's these fantasy stories out there of brands that have done that. But it's this iceberg effect. If you look at the iceberg, all you see is the top sliver of what's above the water. But when you look at what's below the water, it's three, four, five, ten times as deep as what's on top of the water. And that's true with anything in life. Any of these brands that look like they appeared overnight, they didn't. There's a lot more going on years and years behind behind that. Um, that's my story too. You know, A lot of people don't really realize that 10 years ago is when I started posting videos on YouTube on a whim. And I did that for a few years and nothing really came of it, a little bit of ad money. But, um, you know, it wasn't until the past few years that I really turned this into something. So these things also go slowly. So have patience with that. Do it right. Talk to your customer. Understand her. Understand what she cares about. um, And then do your part in educating her. You may find that your prices are too high and you're going to have to make some adjustments. Um, But I think there still are people out there willing to pay the right price for the right product. But that's something you need to figure out based on who you are trying to reach. So I hope that helps, Nicola, give you a better overview of of my advice on what direction I would go with your brand as you are starting to build. Um, And uh, yeah, keep me updated on what your next steps are and how you think about uh, trying to tackle this problem now that I've given you a few words of my advice. So, all right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Again, this was a special episode with you as the the guest. If you want to be a guest on the next show, um, you can always email your question to podcast at SoHeidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com. If you're wondering why I'm using that URL for emails now, I was doing SuccessfulFashionDesigner.com for emails. And even I was getting annoyed with having to type out that long URL. So the website is still Successful Fashion Designer. If you go to SoHeidi.com, it will forward you right along. But for ease purposes, for spelling purposes, everything is easier with SoHeidi.com. So podcast at SoHeidi.com. Send in your questions. I will pick the best ones and answer them on the mailbag episode. We will do these episodes once a month. It's a little bit of an experiment to see how it goes, to see how you guys like it. So if you have feedback, ideas, advice, anything, shoot me an email. I am always on the other side of the email and I love hearing from you. I don't get to reply to every email, but I do read every email. And again, I would love to hear more of your questions so I can answer them on the next mailbag episode. Don't be a stranger. Reach out. No question is too small, too big, too stupid, too nothing. Every question is a great question. So please send them in. Have a fantastic day, you guys. I will talk to you soon. And uh, yeah. See you later. Bye-bye.